Hello, I'm Lorne Michaels, executive producer of Saturday Night Live. Recently, the guys at the fledgling podcast Wanted by None asked if I'd come on and, you know, do an introduction for their third episode, where they'll be talking about the show I created, Saturday Night Live. Technically, I think a court of law would refer to it as low-grade stalking or harassment, but that's another story. You may be asking yourself, Lorne, why are you doing this? Well, here's the thing. They were pleasant enough. They said I could do and say whatever I wanted, and most importantly, I'd never hear from them again. I'd like to take this time and remind all of you Great friends of the show. Really, guys? Great friends of the show? Fine. Great friends of the show that neither Jeff nor Sean work on Saturday Night Live or, you know, in comedy. Jeff, you know, the one with the glasses who won't stop pestering me with questions because, quote-unquote, I'm his hero and, you know, he's read two books on the show and think he's an expert. He's never worked in comedy. It's like that time I was walking with Paul Simon in Midtown Manhattan in the 1980s, and Paul said to me, Lorne, does reading two books on a subject make you an expert? And I said, no, no, no. The other guy, Sean, you know, with the beard, clearly never been in comedy either. I was talking to Chris Rock backstage at the show once, and he told me he was keeping his beard. And I said, Chris, you know, in comedy, we glue the beards on. I would ask that you keep this in mind as you listen to the two guys ramble on and on about a subject they have no experience of. I would also like to thank you for listening and say, and now, wanted by none. Welcome to episode three. Episode three. Trace, if you will. Trace episodes. <laughs> Trois for our French-speaking great <laughs> mon amis of the show. I'm Sean Beecham, and I'm here with my partner in pod. It's Jeff Garoni, everybody. Welcome to episode three. We're so happy for all of you to have joined us one more time, one more trip around the sun. We're here for episode three, and we're going to be talking about, I would say, probably in the latter half of the 20th and first half of the 21st century, there may have been no more important television show, comedy television show, than Saturday Night Live. So that is going to be our topic today. Hope you're ready to jump in with us. Saturday Night Live is... Live like, on Saturday nights? I mean, my God, it's been on the air since I've been born. I'm going to feel really young in this episode, I think. <laughs> well, it's older than either one of us. Yeah. Full disclosure to our great friends of the show, I'll be turning 40 in August. <laughs> in late September or early October, Saturday Night Live will return for their 43rd season. That's a four followed by a three. Wow. Yep. Drink it in, man. 43 years for Saturday Night Live. Especially when you consider 
the I don't want to say rocky beginnings, but Very the rocky. uneasy, volatile beginnings of Saturday Night Live. Yeah. <laughs> it has quite the <laughs> it has quite the origin story. So uh, as it turns out, my want to do, you know, I love for those of you who've been with us, I do love setting the historical tone. I think it's my bachelor's degree in history wanting to come out, but I think it's a good <laughs> idea for everybody out there to understand the TV landscape when Saturday Night Live was created and debuted versus where we are now. You know, we're all used to three bajillion channels on demand whenever we want right here, right now. I can't even figure out what I want to watch anymore. There's just right. so much content out there. In 1974-ish, which is about when Saturday Night Live was really started to be conceived, there were three television networks, NBC, ABC, and CBS. Fox had not been a thing yet. Cable was still about uh, five, ten years away from really becoming a thing. So you had your three networks, and in your local community, maybe you had an independent station or two. That was it. And late night television, which we all know now to be this myriad kind of grab bag of all kinds of different personalities, whether it's Conan or Fallon or Kimmel or Corden or Seth or uh, if I'm missing somebody, sorry, Samantha B, John Oliver, The Daily Show, all these different things. Late night television, talk show television in 1974 was one show, one man. The TV show was The Tonight Show on NBC. The man was Johnny Carson. It wasn't until Johnny retired in 1992 that you saw networks span out and try to grab a late night spot because Johnny was untouchable for the vast part of his span. Johnny was untouchable. None of the networks wanted to try to put anything against him. Something like 20 million people watched Johnny every week. That is insane. Yeah, it was it, Johnny. Th <laughs> well, you'll I never see Johnny Carson again. When you have three three channels. I mean. Yeah, again, limited competition and whatnot. But the other two networks just decided, ah, we're good. We'll do something else. The You know, the only reason that you, well, I shouldn't say the only reason, a major reason why talk shows look like they look like today in late night is because and CBS thought when Johnny announced his retirement, and rightfully so, that NBC could not figure out a way to keep Jay Leno and David Letterman. They were right. What I'm to understand, CBS didn't really care at the beginning which one. They just knew they wanted one. And obviously they got Letterman. The rest is history. Letterman left 1230. They hired Conan and so on and so on and so on. So, But 1974, when Saturday Night Live gets created, Johnny is the only game in town. The Tonight Show is the only act in town. And what happened was Johnny signed a new contract with NPC, and part of that contract was working less. So instead of doing five nights a week, Johnny was now doing four. I would just like to point out to people that later on, Johnny only works three nights a week. Johnny gets what he wants. Johnny, and that's why guest hosts became a thing. Leno guest hosted, Gary Shandling guest hosted. That's uh, Joan Rivers. That's why guest hosts became a thing, because they could only do so many reruns, and you know they had to keep it somewhat fresh. So in 1974, Carson signs a contract with NBC, and he gets in his contract that only has to work four nights a week. The fifth night he's off, I believe, at this contract was Friday. So he's working Monday through Thursday. So NBC is looking around trying to figure out what they're going to do, because what had been happening up to that point is Saturday nights... 
from 11.30 p.m. to 1 a.m., which you now know is the Saturday Night Lifetime slot. <laughs> NBC was running Best of Carson. They were running Johnny reruns from another week, another year, to fill the spot. Well, because Johnny was going to go to four nights a week and not five, NBC decided we can't burn through reruns at this rate. We're going to be rerunning the reruns, which we don't want to do. Right. So they were debating how to fill the 11.30 to 1 p.m., uh, 1 a.m. slot on Saturday night because they had to move the Carson reruns out. Through a lot of back and forth, through a lot of hand-wringing, they decide that they are going to launch a comedy variety music show with a unknown, uh, relatively unknown to the American television audience, Canadian producer in charge. And his grand scheme is to have a comedy variety show hosted by A-list comedians and celebrities, but mainly comedians, bring on young improv comedians from around the country in Canada, th from National Lampoon, from Second City, and also have musical acts. And that was going to be the show. And that's the show that became NBC Saturday Night. They could not call it Saturday Night Live when it aired. Another network was doing a show called Saturday Night Live, believe it or not, hosted by sports personality Howard Cosell. It was on ABC and his star... One of the stars of that ensemble show was Bill Murray. Wow, really? Yes. Okay. Lorne wanted Bill Murray for year one of Saturday Night Live, but NBC right. would not give him the budget. So that's why the cast was Aykroyd, Chevy, Belushi, Gilda, Curtin, Newman, and Garrett Morris. He wanted Bill Murray. Chevy Chase was never supposed to be on TV. I'm jumping ahead a little here. He was, he was a Chevy writer, Chevy was right? hired to be a writer. Yeah. They decided, Lorne and his partner at the time was Dick Ebersole, who Dick Ebersole goes on to become a huge, huge factor at NBC in the sports department. The Olympics televised in this country on NBC almost is solely on the flop sweat of Dick Ebersole. He also bought Sunday Night Football back to NBC. And for Sean and I, who are wrestling fans, he teamed up with Vince McMahon in the 80s to do Saturday Night's main event. And the ill-fated XFL, if we're being fair. Ill-fated but resurgent, maybe? Yeah. Well, well, we'll see. <laughs> so Dick Ebersole and Lorne Michaels got together and worked out what would eventually become Saturday Night Live, which would debut in October of 75. So they, they gathered that cast I just talked about. They sat down to figure out who they thought they would like to host the run of the shows and set about also creating other things. So... Early on in Saturday Night Live, Albert Brooks was hired to do film, to do taped films. So the idea that the digital short people, the, the Lonely Island guys, were killing the live aspect of Saturday Night Live. Folks, they've been doing tape bits on Saturday Night Live since 1975. Albert Brooks was the first hire because Albert was a name. They wanted name recognition because they knew that nobody would know who the cast members were. Right. Some people would, you know, if you were familiar with National Lampoon or if you had been to Second City in Toronto or Chicago, you would have seen these folks. But the average person wouldn't know who Dan Aykroyd was at the time or John Belushi. They would find out, but not at that moment. They also hired Jim Henson to do Muppet segments, but it wasn't Kermit the Frog. It wasn't Fozzie Bear and it wasn't Big Bird. These were 
originally created Muppets for the show that everybody hated and very quickly was dropped because nobody liked it. I think Jim Henson did quite all right after that. Yeah, Jim was fine. (laughs) The idea being that the cast members got more famous quicker and people wanted to see more of them. If you watch the first show, they are not in it a lot. They do The musical guest goes on, and it's been a while since I've seen the first episode, but I have. They had the musical guest go two or three times. Billy Preston was one of the musical guests. Mm. And the host was Carlin. George Carlin was the guest host. Oh, yeah. And he did two monologues. Not one, two. Because Carlin was the star. Carlin was a big star. George Carlin can carry two monologues. Right. But ostensibly, and remember at the beginning, the host was supposed to be the star. Right. It was a star vehicle for the host. I mean... Did they want the cast members to get some notoriety? Sure. I don't think they anticipated it would happen the way it would happen, where by season two or season three, you could argue the cast was as famous as anybody hosting. Yeah. And especially when Animal House hit, nobody was as famous as Belushi. I mean, John Belushi was one of the most famous entertainers in the country. Once Animal House comes along, Belushi was a huge megastar. So... Again, a little Saturday Night Live history here. I suppose it's a good time to chime in that the two books that are going to be referenced by me and some of the the historical stuff are available on Amazon, both certainly electronically as Kindle. Um, One of them is out of circulation as a a hard copy or paperback book. One of them is called aptly Saturday Night, a backstage history of Saturday Night Live by Doug Hill. That really covers the first five years so 1975 to 1980, uh, the not ready for primetime player era. At the end of that five-year period, pretty much everybody from those early years has left, including Lorne, which I'm sure we'll cover in this episode. In season five, Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi have left to do the Blues Brothers. So Bill Murray is kind of the last male lead standing. Jane Curtin and Lorraine Newman are still there, but Belushi and Aykroyd at the end of season four in the summer went to shoot the Blues Brothers. Aykroyd promised he'd come back to write and decided he didn't want to do it. (laughs) So uh, in the beginning of season five, there's no Dan Aykroyd, there's no John Belushi, and it shows. Lorne carried some resentment. Did he not kind of resent the fact that people were leaving and making money elsewhere? I mean, they created a studio so that they could produce these films in-house. Well... The movie thing was new at that. The movie thing hadn't really happened yet. I think he learned his lesson from the Blues Brothers, Mm. certainly. I think it varies person to person. I think by the end of season four, everybody was fed up with Belushi. I think we all know Belushi had issues. um, And those issues were becoming harder and harder to control. And he was becoming more difficult and more resentful. Um, He just wanted out. So I think there was a part of Lorne that was just like, all right, fine. I think he was hurt at Aykroyd because Aykroyd promised him I'd come back to write. And yeah. when Aykroyd calls him like three weeks before they're supposed to start work on the first episode, Dan says, yeah, I'm not coming back. Me and John are, are done. I think that hurt Lorne a little bit, but he had had experience with it. I mean, Chevy left after one year, so he had had experience with it at that point. I think it's a lot different now, but I think Lorne's a lot different now. That's probably true. He's an executive producer on a lot of... Lorne owns everything. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Lorne, over time, Lorne has accumulated quite the late night stable. When the last late night kerfuffle happened and they threw Conan out for Leno to bring Leno back, they had already hired Fallon for 1230 to replace Conan. And 
Lauren became the executive producer of Fallon's Late Night with Jimmy Fallon show. He was the executive producer for Conan's. But towards the end of Conan's run, and when he transitioned to The Night Show, Conan and Lorne agreed. Lorne, they took Lorne off. Which I believe Conan would have had a better shot at staying around if he had done a couple of things. I think kicking, losing Lorne hurt because he lost somebody who had some stroke who could potentially keep the network off his back for another six months to fix the show. Um, I don't want to get into late night Conan minutia, but the other thing Conan should have done, and I say this, by the way, somebody, folks, I love Conan. I really do. Great friend um, of the show. He's somebody whose comedy I idolize and I think is just one of the funniest people around. However, in 2004, to sign a contract to take over The Tonight Show, and you don't have built into that contract a penalty that says NBC gives me a TV show before midnight Eastern time or they pay me $50 million is criminal, which is what Conan didn't have, which Letterman got in the CBS contract. And that's how CBS ended up getting Letterman off of NBC. They put a poison pill in his CBS contract that said, if CBS doesn't give Letterman a show before midnight Eastern time, they pay him $20 million or some crazy number. And NBC didn't want to match that offer. So in 2004, when Conan signed the contract that led him to The Tonight Show, to not have that built in is criminal. <laughs> and, and by the way, Conan's representatives weren't dumb. They, they should have seen, they really should have, they really should have built that in. So Lorne was executive producing Fallon. So Fallon gets bumped to Tonight Show when Leno retires. Lorne comes with him. So now Lorne is the executive producer of The Tonight Show. Also, he's the executive producer for Seth at 1230. Right. <laughs> Lorne owns Late Night. Which... Like, let, let's just put it as clearly as possible. If you read the late the Live from New York book, where they talk about Lorne going to meet Carson in California, and the way Johnny, A, treated Lorne, B, felt about Saturday Night Live in general, there's a part of Lorne that considers this a victory. Carson was not very gracious. I don't know what Carson thought NBC was going to do. It wasn't Saturday Night Live. And he was very not amenable to helping. And you got the sense that when they flew to meet him, they were kind of going to like beg a little. And I think that always rubbed Lorne the wrong way. And a show, by the way, Saturday Night Live was never set up to compete with Tonight Show. Um, so I don't know what Johnny thought they were doing. Clearly he wasn't happy, but Johnny put them there because he decided he wanted to work four days a week. And I know Johnny really did not like Saturday Night Live. Uh, the other thing that hurt Johnny was, so one season one takes off and Chevy Chase took off because at that point he was the only cast member going on TV and saying his name. You know, he used to come on for Weekend Update and do, hello, I'm Chevy Chase and you're not. He was the only cast <laughs> yeah, right. member saying his name. <laughs> Chevy understood TV before everybody else did. That is now, I think, the only sketch or segment, I'll call, I'll call it a segment. That has survived all that has 43 years? Yeah. Not only survived, but served as a sort of launching yep. pad for uh, a number of people. Yep. Uh, and it's the only one that they use their real names on. Yes. Any, you know, when you think of the run of people who have done Update, Dennis Miller, Kevin Nealon, Colin Quinn, Norm MacDonald... Jimmy and Tina, Tina and Amy, Amy and Seth, now Colin Jost and Michael Che, 
Seth Meyers by himself. Yeah, I mean, they're on TV saying their names. It's a big deal. Colin Jost and Michael Che are also head writers, too. Yes. Currently. Uh, and I think Colin's been a head writer for a while. Yes. Che is new. That's a new thing for, for Michael Che. Yeah, that is really the only... That's one of the few things that survived. I mean, they would never have a host go on now and do two monologues. Never. I don't care if you're Jerry Seinfeld. You're not going on and doing two monologues. Right. The musical guest is really two shots at it now. Yeah. The variety aspect is almost completely gone. You know, they had Penn and Teller on. They wouldn't put Penn and Teller on now. I mean, maybe to host, maybe, but... No, it's pretty structured now. It's, it it's a, a comedy. Sh- it's a comedy show now. Yeah. It's a comedy music show. The variety aspect is dead. Harry Anderson, who was the judge on Night Court, he used to come on and do magic in the mid-80s. Oh, my God. They wouldn't bring Harry Anderson on now to do magic. No. It wouldn't happen. And what's funny is Lauren loves the variety show, but he, he'll acknowledge that you couldn't do the variety show part of it now. But yeah, I mean, the whole... To think of it then, in 75, George Carlin was a huge star. He was one of the biggest comedians on the planet. Lorne was adamant that Carlin had to host the first show because he wanted to show people, this isn't your father's television. This is a young person medium. It's supposed to be hip. It's supposed to be now. It became pretty edgy. Yeah. So if you're launching that show in 75 and George Carlin isn't in the first two or three episodes, you're lying to people. Um, Mm. I know the network didn't want Carlin. Sure. For obvious reasons. It's risky. They were very worried about what George Carlin would say. Yeah. He was on a crazy delay. That's hilarious. Which we'll talk about in a minute because they do it to somebody else. Because one of, when they asked Lauren, okay, after Carlin, he listed a few people out and he said, Richard Pryor. (laughs) Which, again, if you're in the 1970s and you're looking for hot A-list comics to come on and host... You know, Carlin, and then you do Richard Pryor? Yeah, yeah, obviously. Those are your number one and number 100%. two choices. As you can imagine, NBC was scared of Richard Pryor. Yeah. For, again, obvious reasons. And they put Richard Pryor on not a seven-second delay. He was on like a five-second delay. <laughs> like, they were deeply concerned about what Richard may or may not say on live television. <laughs> With Lorne kind of saying, you know, I need to, ha- I need to have Richard. This is, uh, it was one of the many times Lorne threatened to quit before a show, because it came to the point where NBC decided they maybe didn't want Pryor, and Lorne said, I have to have Pryor. I, I quit if I don't have Pryor's those. It's a tactic Lorne has developed over the years. I don't think he has to use it now, but certainly then quitting was not above. He was not above threatening to quit. If something happened that was not to his liking. And he did quit for a while, didn't he? He walked away from the show. Yeah. In 19, at the end of season five, he knew that everybody was pretty much done. The writing staff was burnt out too. And then whoever was left from the cast that had started with him was gone. Gilda was going to leave. Jane Curtin. Bill Murray, certainly. Bill Murray was real frustrated in season five. Bill Murray's an interesting case. Bill Murray follows Chevy Chase. Which, at that point, it would be like hiring me to replace Bill Simmons. <laughs> I, I mean, Chevy was a huge star. He got famous real fast. He broke free from those pack real fast. And I'm not kidding. It's because he went on TV and said his name. People it's, knew who he was. It's just that simple. People knew who he was. And Update was very funny. And when you watch Chevy do Update, it's so effortless and so smooth. I know we hate Chevy Chase now. I know why. I get it. 
But if you have an opportunity ever to watch a Saturday Night Live rerun from like 75 when Chevy's doing Weekend Update, that is a, that is a man in full command of his moment and is just smooth. It looks effortless. It's just effortless and smooth. So Chevy was a big star. He decided to leave. He said some things about the show that people didn't like. Uh, he and John Belushi, from the moment they met, were in some sort of weird ego contest, at least from Belushi's aspect. I think Chevy never saw Belushi. I don't think Chevy thought, John, we have to be enemies. Belushi saw it as very confrontational. Chevy's in a spot that I want. I'm going to get there. So Chevy leaves. They bring in Bill Murray. And if I can have people understand, Bill felt the crowd was not responding to him. He was getting a lot of negative fan mail from uh, viewers because he wasn't Chevy. And also, too, Bill was kind of boxed in. He was the third male lead. If you're writing a sketch for somebody and you want it to soar, you're writing it for Belushi. If you're writing a commercial parody, you're writing it for or with Aykroyd. Because, again, effortless. Watching Dan do, you know, Super Bassomatic 76 and <laughs> all the great commercials he did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Murray was kind of stuck behind the two of them. The two of them liked Bill Murray and did try to help him. But it was a product of the environment. John and Dan were big stars. I'm going to say the words big stars a lot. I'm really sorry. I can't describe for you folks how big a star in 1976, 7, 8, John Belushi was. And consequently, right behind him, how big his friend Dan Aykroyd was. And it happened quick. It happened real, it happened real fast. A rocket ship. So Murray was kind of buried behind those two guys. Then those two guys leave, and now Bill has to shoulder the load. <laughs> he was not happy. So he was going to leave at the end of five, and he did. So Lorne went to the network and asked for some things, and the network was not in a position to give it to him at that point. He wanted the show shut down for six months so he could recast. He could get new writers. They said, no, you've got to go in November. You know, we can't have you off until November or December. We have an election. So Lorne ended up walking away. He did not return until 1985. So from the 1980-81 season to the 85-86 season, Lorne was gone. Um, it was a series of people who replaced him. One was a woman who worked for him named Jean Domanian, who didn't make it out of the first season that she was in charge. I will say this. Her claim to fame that year was hiring Eddie Murphy at 19 to be a, not a featured player, to be a background player. Mm. I and let me repeat that phrase. The 19-year-old Eddie yeah, Murphy, yeah, yeah. who, by the way, at that point was already a huge giant star in stand-up comedy. He was already doing stand-up gigs at 19. He had met Rondi Dangerfield, who loved him. Dangerfield instantly saw Eddie Murphy and loved him. So Eddie was already getting there. That's another one. I don't think people understand 81, 82, 83, 84, how big a star Eddie Murphy was. He was a huge star. He carried Saturday he carried Night Live. Now, some of it was you're just feeding your hot hand. Eddie was so hot, you couldn't help but feed him. And if you were a writer and you wanted your material scene, you were writing for Eddie. And if you weren't, you're dumb. But... Eddie ended up really shouldering a lot of the load on Saturday Night Live. And when you look at the breadth of Eddie Murphy's repertoire on that show, characters, impressions, update pieces, taped 
Eddie could do everything on that show. He could do everything and anything. And by the time he finishes his run on that show, he's like in his 20s. And he's already made a million dollars to be in movies. So he leaves. He's made 48 hours already. He's made trading places with Dan Aykroyd already. And the movie he leaves to shoot is Beverly Hills Cop. Let's let that sink in. Beverly Hills Cop went on to make like $200 million and was one of the biggest hits of 1984. And by the way, a year earlier was going to be a serious action movie with Sylvester Stallone. That was the beginning of what Hollywood calls pay or play contracts. So Stallone had a contract. Either I play in the movie or you pay me. So what ended up happening was they decided they wanted to make a, a more comedy film because they had done, this was Paramount, they had already done 48 and trading places with Eddie Murphy. They saw how funny he was. They saw what a big, huge star he was. They wanted to be in the Eddie Murphy business. So they paid Sylvester Stallone to not be in Beverly Hills Cop. And they redid the script to be a comedy to let Eddie Murphy be the star. And thank God they did. Eddie was like 23. <laughs> yep. I feel Unheard of. I feel accomplished now. Right? <laughs> Ridiculous. I mean, again, rocket ship. Just a rocket ship. And... My favorite Eddie Murphy quote was, his last episode was March of 1984. So he'd even finish out the 84 season. Mm. Chris Connolly, who writes for Rolling Stone, he does stuff for ABC. This was such a huge story that Rolling Stone devoted a cover issue to Eddie Murphy's last week at Saturday Night Live. So they sent Chris Connolly to spend the week with Eddie leading up to the Saturday night where he finishes. Just another thing to remember about that year, they were so concerned that the show would tank when Eddie left. He, over Christmas and New Year's, came into New York and recorded taped bits so he would be around until the end of the year. The only thing is you never saw Eddie at the end waving goodnight from <laughs> March to May. So again, that's how big a star and how important to Saturday Night Live Eddie was at that point. So this was the last time he was going to be in the building. He had taped his taped stuff he was gone the oh who's the group that does joanna from the 70s and 80s sean's gonna google that anyway Connolly follows eddie murphy around for the week and eddie is disgruntled i've kind of read you can find clips of it around it's hard to find eddie is clearly burnt out <laughs> he's uh clearly tired and he's clearly ready to go to the next thing but he's a little wistful um, I think he understood, you know, his impact on the show. Obviously, you know, he had he had carried that show for so long. I don't think, again, people just don't understand how big Eddie was. We, you know, for us, we saw Dave Chappelle suffer. Suffer is a, maybe a, a tough word, but we saw what Chappelle went through when Rick James took off. When on the Chappelle show, he did Rick James. You know, Chappelle would do stand-up sets and people would yell Rick James at him and it drove him nuts. Well, the same thing happened to Eddie. One of Eddie's characters was Buckwheat from the uh, Our Gang Files. He has a lisp, he has crazy hair, and Eddie did a very good Buckwheat. Well, Eddie was doing stand-up sets and they'd start yelling Buckwheat. So one of the things Eddie does, I want to say a year or two before he leaves the show, is he kills Buckwheat. They devote a whole episode to the assassination of Buckwheat. They do it like the Kennedy assassination, my favorite part of that, and it's one of my favorite Saturday Night Live bits of all time. So they shoot Buckwheat, and Buckwheat is dead. They caught Buckwheat's killer. 
who is John David Stutz. The joke is always, the assassins always have three, three names. names. Yeah. <laughs> Lee Harvey Oswald, Sirhan Sirhan, you know, all these guys always have three names. So they go to John David Stutz. Also, they shoot John David Stutz like he's Jack Ruby. They bring John David Stutz into the police station. Somebody walks up and shoots John David Stutz like he's Jack Ruby from the Kennedy assassination. So Buckwheat is dead. John David Stutz is dead. But the news network must carry on. So they go to John David Stutz's hometown. They go to a gas station and they interview a woman. And it goes like this. They say, did you know the man who killed Buckwheat, John David Stutz? Yes, he was a quiet man. He grew up in this town, but he was quiet, kept to himself. The reporter then says... Did you know that he'd kill Buckwheat? And she, without missing a beat, turns to the camera and says, oh, yes, he talked about it constantly. It was like it was an obsession. And now when I see these things, when they go to, like, when Dateline does, like, the, the mind of a killer and they go to these hometowns, that's all I can think of. It's like, did you know that blah, blah, blah. Oh, yeah, he talked about it constantly. But he was quiet. Nobody ever says about the guy who does something horrible. Like, he was out there, baby, and living his best life. Yeah, right. It's amazing. These guys are always quiet, unassuming. You know, uh, everybody in the neighborhood knows who they are. They just know he's quiet. It's, it's unbelievable to me. Did we find out who did Joanna? Well, there's a lot of songs named Joanna. Uh-huh. Cool in the Gang? Yes. Okay. Sean will edit this in post. So Cool in the Gang was the musical guest for Eddie's Last Night. Joanna was the number one song in the country, which is why they were on SNL. And I don't know, do people out there know Eddie Murphy recorded a song? I'm going to let you in on one of the great delights in my life is that we can find this clip on YouTube. If you want to get lost in the magic, Google or go, go to YouTube and search Eddie Murphy party all the time. It's fantastic. And by fantastic, I mean, it's horrible. Uh, <laughs> Rick James is the producer. The only way I can describe Rick James in that video is it looks like Rick James thinks he has struck gold. Rick James is into it. The rest of us, maybe not so much. The song is not great. So this was Eddie's move. Instead of movies, Eddie wanted to go be a pop star. He says to Chris Connolly, as Cool in the Gang is performing Joanna, the number one song in the country, he turns to Chris Connolly and says, this is what I want to do. And Chris Connolly is, is stunned. He's like, you're going to be a, you want to be a musician? And Eddie's like, yep, I got it all lined up. I'm going to do an album, blah, 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 blah. And Chris Connolly says, are you sure? You know, your movie career is going to be massive. And Eddie Murphy, without missing a beat, says, if they can do it, so can I. They had the number one song in the country. They were a decent act, Cool in the Gang. And Eddie says, if they can do it, so can I. Yeah, well, sorry, Eddie. Stick to the movies, I guess. And that's, isn't that amazing? That's truly what happened, was in Chris Connolly's article. I, I found it. Uh, I go through waves of SNL nostalgia. Eddie is one of those great pieces because Eddie is in that time where Lorne's not in control. Now that Lorne is in control, he's kind of buried those years. Also with those years too, um, the music rights fee gets more expensive. They released the first five years as uh, TV box sets and they stopped after year five because the music right, the ability to license the music from the 80s was just so prohibitively expensive. Uh, and they had some big acts in the 80s singing big songs that probably cost a lot of money. So that's the other reason. It's hard to find some of Eddie's stuff because the music rights is a problem. Because one of the things that happened was in the first couple of years, they couldn't, it was hard for them to get really big name music acts 
But once two season two, season three took off and they became real famous, the musicians followed the Rolling Stones and so on and so forth. Well, yeah. in the eighties, they were using the music to kind of buttress the fact that, you know, they were, they were glad to get the big musical act. So especially in that, and we'll talk about this weird season too, the season after Eddie left, they wanted to cancel Saturday Night Live, but the people making the decision turned out had a soft spot for it. So Dick Ebersole, who was now in control, decides, well, if this is the last year, I'm going out with a bang. So Eddie left, Joe Piscopo left, a few other people left, and he brought in Billy Crystal, Martin Short, Christopher Guest, and Harry Shearer. For one year, they were told they, they signed one-year contracts. A few of them, I think, would have stayed longer. Billy Crystal would have. In the book, Live from New York, he wanted to stay. He loved it. And when you watch Billy, you can see he's enjoying himself. Billy Crystal understood the format. Another Billy Crystal, great friend of the show. He's another guy. I have a so huge soft spot for Billy. I love Billy. Yeah, he's hilarious. Um, he's really funny. Comedy hero for me, Billy is in that list. It's a long list. We can do it if you want, but Billy's on that list. Martin Short was great. Uh, and Chris Guest was great, but it only lasted a year. That season is real hard to find, too, because of the music. They had, like, real big acts that year, like the Thompson Twins. I, I guess Hold Me cost quite a bit of money. Jeez. But um, that year is hard to find, too. But if you ever get a chance to see Billy uh, Crystal and Martin Short and Harry Shearer and Chris Guest that season, they do some really great stuff. Billy Crystal does Fernando. You know, you look marvelous. It's just great. <laughs> Martin Short brings Ed Grimley to American TV. He was doing Ed Grimley at Second City where he replaced Rick Moranis. But he American TV got to see Ed Grimley, which is fantastic. I love Martin Short. And then one of my favorite SNL sketches, underrated, is Billy Crystal and Christopher Guest do these two guys who are like blue-collar workers. And... Uh, Billy Crystal will turn to him and go, you know, I was doing the other night, I was sitting around and I took a, uh, and Chris Guest will go, ball-peen hammer? He goes, right. And I just started, you know, bashing my foot. And boy, I, I couldn't tell you how hard that was. And Chris Guest will say, you know, the other day I took a uh, screwdriver? Yeah. And I just jammed it in my thumb. <laughs> it's the weirdest thing and their voices are so funny, but it legitimately cracks me up anytime I see it. Again, underrated. My other favorite uh, character from that year was uh, Martin Short's attorney. Nathan Fromm, he's a defense attorney who's defensive. So <laughs> yes. he, he's on 60 Minutes and Harry Shearer's playing Mike Wallace and he's talking to him and he's saying, you know, uh, did you read the memo? Of course I read the memo. Why wouldn't I have read the memo? With this really long cigarette drag and it's all about being <laughs> defensive. And he would say, you know, like, I know that. Of course I know that. Why wouldn't I know that? Two very underrated bits. And again, it only lasted a year. What ended up happening was Lauren came back in 86 and then everybody left. Martin Short didn't want to stay for more than a year. He didn't like it as much as Billy did. Mm. He didn't like the hours. Well, they I don't know what the, the production schedule is like back it's then. It's never but, changed. But they, they start on Monday, right? Pr or yeah. Tuesday. No, depending Monday. On start at Monday, meeting, and then I'm assuming pitch some ideas. Well, yeah. There's writing and pitching Tuesday, Wednesday, even into Thursday. Up until Thursday, yeah. Friday, Jeez. they start to get a sense of what is going to go to dress rehearsal. And then Saturday, it's all day. Then they come in for dress rehearsal before 1130. I think their dress rehearsal is, it's either 830 to 10 or 9 to 1030. And it's essentially the show. More sketches than what you see on TV. Right. The musical guest goes full bore. 
So you get the two musical performances. And then after that, Lauren decides what sketches make TV and what don't. And they're essentially going from like somewhere in the teens to like nine. But if you think of what they start with on Monday to nine, the process is taxing. Yeah. I don't know one person who's ever left the show that's ever wistfully talked about the production schedule. Yeah, that seems it's like... It's beaten everybody. That, that is a beyond full-time gig. And you're writing very early into the morning. Yeah, uh, I, so I could understand him being a little burnt out. <laughs> Larry David was a, a writer. Yeah, Larry And David. the hours drove him nuts. He hated the hours. And also, Larry was very fast, so he would finish his stuff and leave. And people would be like, where's Larry? Because he wasn't there at three in the morning writing. He didn't want to. And that drove Larry nuts. He actually wrote the year Billy Crystal was there. They did a Jewish weatherman. Yeah. Billy would come on and do a weatherman, except he would only talk about the weather where his relatives were. And it was like, tomorrow it'll be 60s. It'll rain. Bring a coat. Don't be a big shot. <laughs> yeah. It was like Lou Gutman, the weatherman. But it was always like the weather was restricted to like New York City and Florida because that's where people we knew were. <laughs> Again, it's a year that's really tough to find. The, the group of them do some really interesting, really weird stuff. That's actually one of my dad's favorite Saturday Night Live years, believe it or not. But my dad is one of the reasons I got into Saturday Night Live. One of his favorite years is that year. Martin Short used to do a character who was a, an albino, an albino entertainer, Jackie Rogers Jr. His father was a more famous entertainer, Jackie Rogers Sr. He dies in a plane crash. And, and so the son becomes the, the star. And he, Martin Short goes full albino, the red eyes, the white makeup. Oh, God. And he does uh, his own game show. It was uh, the Jackie Rogers Jr. $15,000 jackpot wad. And it was supposed to be like the $10,000 pyramid. And it's just, it's <laughs> lunacy uh, in its finest. I, uh, again, there are a lot of gems in that year. Uh, that was the year Hulk Hogan and Mr. T hosted before WrestleMania won. Hogan and Mr. T were on Fernando's Hideaway, which was Billy Crystal's talk show about Fernando Lamas, who was this uh, Spanish-American uh, movie star and TV star. And uh, Johnny Carson loved Fernando Lamas because he's charming. The only way I could describe Fernando Lamas is the most interesting man in the world come to life. From the Dos Equis commercials? From the Dos Equis commercials. <laughs> like, imagine if, imagine if the, the most interesting man in the world was actually alive. Yeah. He would talk like Fernando Lamas and Fernando Lamas would sit on the couch with Johnny Carson and he would pick at his like crease in his pants and he would go, you know, Johnny, you look marvelous. And that became the thing. So Billy was doing Fernando and he has Hogan and Mr. T on. And, you know, Mr. T's gimmick was he was the serious badass guy. Yeah, he was man. on the A-team and all that. And, you know, Hulk, serious wrestler. And Hulk had the uh, tank top Hulkamania t-shirt on. It's clear in, in that sketch that Hogan and Mr. T find Billy very funny, and they are trying not to break. Billy Crystal knows this, so he's now trying to break. Yeah, he's making it his mission to break them. And what gets Mr. T to the point where you know Mr. T has lost his mind, Billy Crystal catches Hulk Hogan laughing, and his pecs start to move up and down. <laughs> and Billy goes, you know, when you laugh, your things, they go boom, boom, boom. And Mr. <laughs> T just dies laughing. And Hogan, you could see him do like the puffed out cheeks because he's trying to hold it in. Again, there's a lot of gems that year. A, a lot of gems. Um, they do some real interesting good stuff that year. But again, it's one of those weird years in Saturday Night Live where like nobody knows. Billy Crystal was on for a year because it was a between the Lorne period. And when he came back in 86, he wanted fresh 
talent. Is that when he went back to the uh, unknown yep. actor model? Yep. And his cast that year was Anthony Michael Hall, Robert Downey Jr. I don't know if people know this. Robert yeah, Downey Jr. was I don't on think a lot of people Life know that. He was. Nora Dunn, Dennis Miller, who did update, and John Lovett, among a few other people. Damon Wayans was actually on that year too, but he didn't make it the whole way. And uh, that was the year where at the end, they have a fire. They stage a fire. The whole cast goes in the room. Dennis Miller and Nora Dunn are not on screen. The rest of the cast goes in this room for quote-unquote safety, and you see Lovitz start to walk to the room, and Lorne comes on screen and pulls Lovitz off. And they close the door, and it was like, to be continued next season. And none of those people came back, except Dennis, John Lovitz, and Nora Dunn. They burn their cast. That season is terrible. (laughs) The only thing that saves that season are Dennis doing Weekend Update and Lovitz. Lovitz was doing uh, The Pathological Liar, Tommy Flanagan, The Pathological Liars Anonymous. And of course, yeah, yeah, I founded the organization, yeah. So, you know, he can't help but lie as he's doing it. Also an underrated, I love The Pathological Liar, I love it. That next season is when they brought in Jan Hooks, Kevin Nealon, Phil Hartman, and uh, Dana Carvey. And we all know what happens from there. The show took off again. And funny thing, the first sketch of that year was The Church Lady. And Dana had done some improv comedy, but he was mostly a stand-up comic. Extremely talented. I love Dana Carvey. And he was struggling with The Church Lady because it was new. He was trying it out. And Lorne was giving him a lot of notes. And finally, Carvey's like, you know what, Lorne? Fine. Why don't you just cut it? And Lorne says, yeah, Dana, that's what I'll do. I'll cut the thing that you know is going to make the show. Which is way of saying, like, no, I'm not cutting it. We're going to get it right. And Dana will tell you he learned from Lorne that there's a different laugh in stand-up comedy than there is on Saturday Night Live. It's a different laugh. That's another Lorneism. It got a laugh, but did it get the right laugh? If you ever watch Mike Myers, Mike loves that line. And he loves doing it as Lorne. You know. And he always do it like he has a, a wine glass or a martini glass in his hand. And he'll do it. <laughs> you know. Mike, it got the laugh, but, you know, did it get the right laugh? I mean, it's just, it's quite a pretentious line. Yeah. It's funny, though. I think Mike Myers is just really into Lorne, Lorneisms. Well, should we, should we unleash the secret that everybody knows? I guess. I hope our GFOSs, our great friends of the show, have seen Austin Powers. I imagine they have. If you have, then you're familiar with Dr. Evil. Dr. Evil's voice is Lorne Michaels. Plain and simple. Uh, I believe at one point Dr. Evil says to Seth Green's character, Scott, he says, Scott, here's the thing. Yeah, yeah. Which is a Lorneism. If you hear anybody do a Lorne impression, if you listen from the top of the show, that was me doing Lorne. <laughs> but it's not Lorne Michaels. It's me doing Mike doing Dr. Doing Evil. Dr. Evil, yeah. Doing Lorne. <laughs> because that's how I do Lorne. I do Lorne as Dr. Evil. My pinky goes up when I talk. <laughs> But I throw in all the Lornisms. Here's the thing. You know. It's like, you know, and the inveterate name dropping. Oh, yeah. Lorn is an inveterate name dropper. He'll say like, so, Sean, what did you do for dinner last night? And Sean will say, oh, Vicky and I did blah, blah, blah. And he'll go, yeah, you know, Paul and I. And the Paul in that story is invariably Paul McCartney. <laughs> right. Or Paul Simon. Well, you know, Paul and I. McCartney. We went out and, you know, he loved it. Or he'll say, you know, Mick loved it. Mick Jagger. Mick Jagger. Mick loved it. Paul was cool to it. I don't know. So if you heard my 
Lorne impression at the top. Here's the thing. That's a Lornism. Alec Baldwin has a podcast called Here's the Thing. He took it from <laughs> Lorne directly. The, you know, he says, he does say, you know, it's like, you know, where, and it's so purely Toronto Canadian. It's like, you know, that thing of, and it's always a, also like a backhanded, it's never a direct compliment or direct insult. It's backhanded. Right. Yeah, yeah, he yeah. used to go up to Conan O'Brien. He'd see Conan when, so Conan wrote for Saturday Night Live before he wrote for The Simpsons and before he got late night. Yeah. So he'd see Conan and he would go, ah, Conan, still with the show? <laughs> like in an elevator. Yeah. Thanks, Lorne. He does that, but then in the same breath, he says, Conan, why don't you come in the room and help Steve and I? And the Steve is Steve Martin. Right. <laughs> to whom, I mean, again, we're putting together the comedy goldmine for me. You know, we've talked about Billy. We've talked about Conan. Talked about Bill Murray, who Bill Murray is probably the only person when I talk about Saturday Night Live, I think of Bill Post, even though I love Nick the Lounge Singer. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I love Nick the Lounge Singer. I don't love the nerds, him and Gilda Radner as much as other people. I love Nick the Lounge Singer. I'm all for cheesy. Um, one of my favorite SNL tropes is if it's a cheesy musical impression, like I love Will Ferrell's Neil Diamond. I absolutely love it. There's no impression. I don't think he's really doing Neil Diamond. But whatever it is, it works for me. And that is now how I hear Neil Diamond. If I sing Neil Diamond to myself quietly, it's Will Ferrell. <laughs> Jaws. Do you yeah. When he did that? Oh, I, I was watching that oh. last night, actually. I love that. <laughs> um, so Saturday Night Live did the 40th anniversary, yeah. and they did a tribute to music. And at the end of that segment, Bill Murray comes out as his um, lounge singer character doing the love theme from Jaws, which <laughs> yeah. if anybody's seen Jaws, there's no love song. There's no love song. It's a Jaws. shark that eats people, right? So behind Bill Murray are all these shots of the shark like attacking the boat <laughs> and eating people. And he's, you know, Jaws, <laughs> you know. Why did, why did you leave me, Jaws? And he's talking about Jaws, like, leaving him. Jaws, why? Why, Jaws? Yeah. Why? You wanted someone new. And then he does the, <laughs> you bastard, Jaws. <laughs> it cracks me up every time. I, I love the lounge singer character, the Nick the lounge singer character. Uh, one of my favorites is when he sings Star Wars. Yeah. He sings, he puts lyrics to the Star Wars theme music. Star Wars, if they should Bar Wars. I mean, it's <laughs> with Paul Schaefer as his piano player. Uh, so good. Uh, but I think of Murray post Saturday Night Live. Yeah, I can't help but think of movie Murray. Yes. Particularly for me, Ghostbusters. One. I always go to Caddyshack for some reason. I love Caddyshack too. And I, well, I love the first Caddyshack. Stripes. Stripes. So the Golden oh, Murray. God. Golden Murray to me is lost in translation. Yep. Stripes. In no particular order. Lost in Translation, Stripes, Caddyshack, Ghostbusters, and Groundhog Day. Groundhog Day, yes. Right? For whatever reason, Peter Venkman may be my favorite character he does. I, I might agree with I, that. I'll tell you what. If anybody is interested in fronting a one-man show, I want to do Venkman from Ghostbusters as like a, a monologue. It's so great. And if anybody knows me, they've heard me drop the line all the time. You don't generally see that kind of behavior in a major appliance. Uh, <laughs> when when Sigourney Weaver's talking about the refrigerator yeah. basically coming to life and killing her, or or you know trying to eat her, yep. and his response is, "You generally don't see that kind of behavior in a major appliance," is so good. And I I was thinking about this last oh, night too. Man. I think what I like about Murray in that movie is 
Ackroyd and Harold Ramis want to make money too, right? Because yeah. they lost their jobs too. Right. But there is more of a noble pursuit to Ackroyd and Harold Ramis. Like there's a science pursuit that is just not there for Vecman. Right. It is solely a money-making operation. <laughs> yeah. And what's also great is because Ackroyd and Harold Ramis take everything they see as normal. Yeah. The marshmallow man, the giant thing, all these weird things happen. And Harold Ramis and Dan Ackroyd's reaction is scientific. Science, yeah. P uh, Peter Vickman's reaction is skepticism <laughs> and then shock. It is always met with first, I don't believe you. And second of all, okay, that happened. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, his line about the state puff marshmallow man. I get this guy. He's a sailor. He's on leave. We get this guy laid and we won't have a problem. Is just, again, there are so many great lines in Ghostbusters and I think 99% of them are, are Murray. Yeah, I think he carries that movie. I uh, mean, there's a, lot, there's a lot of funny people in that movie, but the, I think he's Yeah, and I love Dan Aykroyd. Undoubtedly we haven't talked about Dan Aykroyd enough for me on the show. I love Dan Aykroyd. And Belushi too. So, I mean, this is not... Yeah, absolutely. But... Venkman in Ghostbusters, Murray in Ghostbusters is awesome. And my other favorite Ghostbusters line, it's actually from Ghostbusters 2, which, believe it or not, my wife likes Ghostbusters 2 more than Ghostbusters 1. Really? It's just insane to me. It makes no, no sense. Whatever. Teach his own. Um, she's going to kill me when this airs. My wife hasn't uh, even seen Ghostbusters. Oh, so. boy. My, the line in Ghostbusters 2, when Murray and Sigourney Weaver are at the restaurant, and <laughs> Ernie Hudson and Harold Ramis and Dacker barge in after they've been underground with the slime and they're you know they're gesticulating wildly so the slime's going everywhere and bill murray stands up and goes boys boys you're scaring the straights uh. every time i see that moment it gets me it just cracks me up i've also used that line in my regular life all the time i don't know what it is that it just gets me <laughs> but i think of bill murray often post snl and i think most people do i think so it's it's sort of hard to think about any of those sort of comedy legends. It's, it's hard to think of anyone who's funny today in entertainment that hasn't gone through or touched SNL in some way. Are you you're talking about excluding hosting, right? So you're talking about like being a cast member? Well, I mean, yeah, I, I view now I view hosting as sort of a, a promo spot. A you lot know, of times it is. You yeah. have a movie coming out. Yes. You host Saturday Night A lot Night of the Live. times, yeah. Uh, but I mean, Chappelle didn't do Saturday Night Live. Correct. Jim Carrey didn't do Saturday Night Live. Robin Williams didn't do Saturday Night Live, although Robin Williams was kind of at, sort of at the start of it. Steve Martin hosted, but he wasn't on. I mean, he wasn't a cast. It feels like he's a cast member. Uh, he's been there so much, yeah. Because he blended so well with them. There's an and there's another guy. We could probably do twenty podcasts about my love for Steve Martin. Yeah, in terms of cast members, writers, it's a lengthy list of people that you all know. Can I do my favorite Steve Martin line? Yeah. So it's when they bring Timberlake on and he gets the Five Timers Club, which for those of you who ah, don't watch SNL, yeah, yeah, yeah. the running joke is there's a backstage club where hosts who have hosted five times get to go and hang out. And in this particular Five Timers Club, they have there's a lot of names here. So Alec Baldwin, <laughs> Steve Martin, Tom Hanks. <laughs> there's a lot of people who show up. So they bring Timberlake into the Five Timers Club and he sees Steve Martin and he walks over to Steve Martin and goes... Oh, no, I'm sorry. It's not Timberlake. It was when Tom Hanks got his five-timers. Tom Hanks okay. goes over to Steve Martin. By the way, Tom Hanks was Steve Martin's groomsman when Steve Martin got married. Tom Hanks was in his wedding party, and Lauren was his best man. So Hanks, I'm sorry for the earlier, the five-timers blends a little. I love the Timberlake five-timers. But Hanks goes up to Steve Martin and says, oh, my God, Mr. Martin, I'm a huge fan. And Steve Martin puts his arm around Tom Hanks and goes, no, Tom, please, call me Mr. Steve Martin. 
And I don't know what it is about that line. It just amuses me. It's like a lot of things that Steve Martin does. I don't always like belly laugh out loud, but that line sticks with me all the time. And I just, I want in my life to be able to say to somebody, they say, oh, Mr. Garoni, oh my God. And I'd be like, no, no, please call me Mr. Jeff Garoni. Yeah. Like to be able to use that line, I might, like if I ever use that at work, I might just take the rest of the day off and go home. Like the day is not going to get better. (laughs) That's the highlight of the day. I'm pulling a Costanza from Seinfeld. I'm leaving while I'm on top. Yeah. Timberlake's hilarious. Timberlake is is phenomenal. Timberlake is is really, really phenomenal. A lot of people who host you wouldn't think would be funny. Yeah. John Goodman is hysterical. John Goodman gets it immediately. The one that always surprised me was Alec Baldwin. Baldwin. Yeah. Because he's such a serious, you know, he's, he's a, um, He's an actor studio actor. He trained with the folks who trained Pacino and De Niro and Marlon Brando and all that serious method acting stuff. And he is hilarious. He has a really great ability to keep a straight face through ridiculous dialogue. He's hilarious. I mean, Alec Baldwin is hilarious. And I, I know, you know, the temperament and how he treats people is probably not aces. But... Yeah, we're not talking about that. We're talking about the comedy. But we're talking about the dude's material. funny. Yeah. I mean, look, folks, you wouldn't have wanted to work with John Belushi either. Yeah, probably not. He was not easy to deal with. And if you were a woman, not even close. He stood up in a meeting and said, women aren't funny. I don't agree with that. For the record, I love John Belushi. I think John Belushi is one of the top five or ten performers to ever be on that show. He's horribly wrong when it comes to women funny. There are plenty of funny women. Two of them were in the room with him at the time. Mm. Jane Curtin and Gilda Radner. Also, you're going to tell me Tina Fey's not funny? Tina Fey's hysterical. Sarah Silverman, Amy Schumer. Yeah, there's there's a long list of funny women. I mean, he, it was dumb. He had issues. Uh, he had plenty of issues. Uh, yeah, the drugs. So, so I mean, the Belushi stories are legendary. I've heard stories that the Blues Brothers budget had a cocaine budget built in because oh, they God. didn't want Belushi buying drugs. They just figured we'd give them to him. Then we know where he was because Belushi would wander. One of my favorite stories about Belushi, he used to wander. He was not above like falling asleep on people's doorstep. He was also not above introducing himself to people, walking into their apartment and just falling asleep on their couch. Oh, my God. (laughs) Uh, The Dan Aykroyd story I heard was that at one point he went up to Belushi and took a watch and took his shoe and smashed the watch with his shoe and said, if you're not careful, you're going to end up like that. So, yeah, the cocaine budget on the Blues Brothers couldn't do that today. Uh, No. There were numerous instances of him showing up not in condition Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, sometimes not Saturday. There is a story in, in one of the books. Actually, it's in both of the books. He is so sick. The NBC doctor says to Lorne, he might die on TV if he goes on. And Lorne said, he gets to die at 1 (laughs) a.m. That is how frustrated with Belushi he was by then. He gets to die at 1 a.m. But Belushi was another one like Eddie Murphy. Belushi could do anything. Character, impression, update, clip. John could do anything. Little Chocolate Donuts is one of my favorite SNL commercials. The idea that he's an Olympic athlete and his training table is he eats tiny chocolate donuts. Let me ask you uh, a subjective question. What happened to SNL? And I, when I say what happened, do you think this current cast is as, it's hard to project into the future, but as legendary as previous casts? The one that's on TV right now today? Yeah. No. I think um, Keenan Thompson has been the longest well, serving cast member. Yeah, and Keenan is great. And he's funny. Keenan is really great. And actually, I think he gets better every year, if you can believe that. Like, I love Black Jeopardy. I just, I think Black Jeopardy is great. Oh, that's hilarious. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I think Kate McKinnon is a star. 
Kate McKinnon, yeah. After that, though, there's nothing doing there. What happened to SNL? Uh, we go through this all the time, right? It's not as good as it used to be. I have a couple thoughts about it. So there's a double-edged sword. They've been doing a lot of celebrities playing prominent Trump cabinet members and Trump himself. So let's yeah. start with it. Alec Baldwin is Donald Trump. In years past, a cast member would be the president. Dana doing George W. George H. W. Bush. Farrell doing W. Mm-hmm. Jay Farrow doing Obama. Aykroyd doing Jimmy Carter. This time around, Alec is the president. He's Donald Trump. He does a very good Donald Trump impression. Who did Bill Clinton? Daryl Hammond. Hammond Phil Hartman before it was yeah. Phil, and then it was then it was Daryl. So but now he's the president. On, they're relying on outside talent now. Ivanka is Scarlett Johansson, who's dating Colin Jost. Yeah, fun fact. <laughs> oh boy. So. Michael Cohen is Ben Stiller. Bob Mueller is Robert De Niro. Jimmy Fallon is Jared Kushner. The only cast members who seem to be doing things, McKinnon is Giuliani and Jeff Sessions. And Jeff Sessions. Oh, Mr. President, so excited. (laughs) Um, Her Giuliani is fantastic too. She's really good at, at ghoulish freak characters, which is easily done for Giuliani. Yeah. Um, and then Alex Moffat and Mikey Day are Don Jr. and Eric. Oh, and Cecily Strong is Melania. But everybody else has been a famous person. John Goodman was Rex Tillerson. Yep. Bill Hader was Scarmucci, yep. which is great casting. My favorite of these is Fred Armisen as Michael Wolf, who wrote Fire and Fury. You know, his thing of like, people say to him, so is it true? And he goes, I mean, yeah. Don't you want it to be? Is just the way Fred plays that is so perfect. It's just so, and I'm going to break the swear barrier. It's so assholic, which fits into that whole Trump dynamic. But the way he delivers it is just pure. Fred is so good. I loved Portlandia. Fred is so good. But all these famous people. Uh, Steve Bannon is Bill Murray. <laughs> that Bill Murray turned out yeah. to be Steve Bannon because they played that so well. Bannon was just a guy in a costume with a weird voice. He was right. the Grim Reaper. He was the Grim Reaper. <laughs> and then they decided to unmask him and that and that Murray was that Murray was him is fantastic. It's perfect. Um, and then Melissa McCarthy was Sean Spicer. Yeah. Oh, sorry, one other thing. So AD Bryant is Sarah Huckabee Sanders. But if you think of like famous people in the news of Trump. Oh, and by the way, Stormy Daniels played herself. Yes. And they took this joke so far that if, if people saw the finale where Tina host Tina Fey hosted, they did the questions in the audience and it was all big name famous people. Jerry Seinfeld. And if Sean is sitting here going, it took us this long for Garoni to get to Jerry Seinfeld. I am a little amazed. I mean, we, we covered Larry David and didn't naturally segue. You mentioned George Costanza and somehow we've avoided Jerry Seinfeld. I would say if I had, if you had to say to me, Jeff, of all the comedy heroes you're going to name on this podcast in subsequent future, if you could just pick three, who would you pick? I would tell you Conan because I love, I love the idea that Conan looked around and said, Johnny was smooth. The joke was just effortless. Yeah. Leno was just a joke machine because he was a stand-up comedian who worked relentlessly. Jay was just a joke machine. And joke machine. Letterman was the 12-year-olds are running the asylum. It was the, when Letterman was Letterman, it was the anti-talk show. Right. He didn't have big name guests. His band was three people. <laughs> you know, stupid human tricks. Thrown himself on the Velcro. It was all low rent, stupid, and, you know, throwing the pencil at the 
screen and going, hee, 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 ha, ha, just amusing yourself with inane, stupid things. But then Paul Schaefer would and then Paul. partner up. Yeah. yeah. So Dave was kind of the anti-talk show. Conan's looking around and going, there's room to be silly. And one of the things I respect and one of the things I like to, listen, I'm serious when I need to be in my job, in my personal life. However, I am with Conan. I enjoy being silly and silly for no reason. Just stupid, silly stuff amuse me to no end. And sometimes it's for my own amusement. It's, I'm an amusement of one. So I love that about Conan. That's what attracts me to Conan, is he's just silly. And also, he has no ego. He is willing to look really dumb, really foolish, say dumb, stupid things for the purposes of the laugh, which yeah, I have I great think, respect for. I think he owns it. He owns the comedy. Yep. Uh, he owns the joke. He knows that sometimes he is the joke. Yep. Because he's a tall, redheaded Irishman. <laughs> yep. With funny hair. Yep. And yeah. a gangly walk. Great friend of the show, Conan. I love Conan. Next on that list would be Steve Martin. Yeah. Just love Steve and the comedy albums from the 70s. Again, I, I feel like we've said this a lot on this podcast. I don't think people understand how big Steve Martin was. And I don't think they understand that these comics now, like Kevin Hart and all these guys who do these, Aziz Ansari, who do these giant Louis C.K., well, maybe not so much anymore, but and maybe not so much anymore for Aziz Ansari, Kevin Hart. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're down to Kevin Hart now. You know, that sell out 20,000 seat arenas and do these giant stadium yeah, tours. courtesy of Steve Martin. Steve Martin did it first. Example, he did three nights at the Hollywood Bowl in 1978, which is this huge venue in Los Angeles. Sean, do you know who his opening act was? Uh, no. It was the Blues Brothers. Beautiful. It was John and Danny and the Blues Brothers band. They opened for Steve Martin. And Steve Martin will tell you, he knew instantly, all right, these guys are not, this is like they're doing me a favor because this is going somewhere. They got such a response themselves. Steve Martin was like, well, this is going somewhere. Clearly. That is quite the warm-up act. Yeah, it's uh, ridiculous. (laughs) And when I listen to those old stand-up stuff that he did, The Wild and Crazy Guy, I love The Jerk. We talked about this the other day. I love Three Amigos. I will fight anyone who does not like Three Amigos. I love Three Amigos. So much of what Steve did is great. So a lot of respect for Steve. And now back to where we were going to start, which is the third person on this list, without a doubt, without a shadow of a doubt, is Jerry Seinfeld. He's the greatest observational comic of our time. Yeah, it almost seems like anyone who does observation comedy is trying to do Jerry Seinfeld. Yeah, you're just doing Jerry. And as much as that show has been gone now for like 20 years... When you hear people in conversation, that show is not gone. No, because it's, it was it, it's it alive. Was a show about nothing, but it was about, you know, day-to-day interactions. I've told this story often, and great friends of the show, if you're hearing this for the 88th time, I'm sorry, but I was working at a school. We had a fire drill. So we went downstairs via the stairs as conscious human beings. Coming up in the elevator, two people in front of me started to discuss the etiquette of getting on and off an elevator. And they actually said the following phrase. So what's the etiquette here? How does that actually work? (laughs) And one of the guys I worked with turned to me quietly and said, Seinfeld is going to live forever. Yeah, absolutely. And and really in that moment, and I hadn't watched, that was like 2002. So Seinfeld had been gone for like three, four years. From that point on, it was like, oh, I do remember why I love that show. My dad and I watched it together religiously. To this day, I watch the reruns anytime I can get it. It's my yeah. favorite comedy of all time. T 
TV comedy. It's my favorite sitcom of all time. If that show were on now, right now, if I could get that show on TV through some format that I have, I'd watch it, even if I've seen the episode a billion times. It doesn't matter. I love Jerry. But Jerry's in the crowd for Tina Fey's finale, and he offers to play Steve Mnuchin. So, I mean, you ask me, what's the problem with Saturday Night Live? First and foremost, a lot of the big prominent roles that would go to cast members are going to famous people. Yeah. Disturbingly famous people. Robert De Niro is playing Bob Mueller. De Niro. De Niro, yeah. Think that through. <laughs> it's, it's a far cry from the unknown comedy troupe. And it seems to me they did it solely because they knew Stiller was going to be Michael Cohen and they wanted to recreate Meet the Parents. Because mm, yeah, if you watch their first appearance together, they talk about milking and De Niro even cues it up. He says, oh, really, Michael? Can you milk me? So I thought to myself, this is just an elaborate Meet the Parents. I guess. Reboot? Yeah. But he plays it hysterically in that because De Niro has such a presence, he doesn't say a lot as Bob Mueller. He doesn't have to. In fact, he was in that cold open. And all he did was walk in and give Trump the, I'm watching you. It was fantastic. But again, it's Robert De Niro. A lot of these prominent people are getting played by very prominent people who are more famous than the cast members. That's a problem. If you're trying to grow the cast that's a problem. It takes away an opportunity for the cast to make a character yep. and make a name for themselves it's a as problem. that character. Yeah, that, yeah, that's a problem. Some people have found their way around it. McKinnon has worked her way into the troupe. And I'll give Beck Bennett credit. I love Vladimir Putin. Oh, yeah. Shirtless Vladimir yeah. Putin. And just showing up like, Donald <laughs> is fabulous. I, I love that. I give Beck Bennett credit. Actually, he's one of the guys I like. I think he gets it. I think he understands yeah. the format. I wish they'd do more with him. I do too. He's underutilized. I'm not a Kyle Mooney guy. I love Leslie Jones. I have a soft spot for Leslie Jones. I like Leslie Jones too, but again, I wish they did more with her because yeah, I feel she like she plays more. the same character in every sketch. She could do more. Do you remember the Leslie Jones thing where she's cognizant of the fact that she plays the same character in every yes. sketch <laughs> and then she tries to pivot yep. to do Donald Trump? Yep. <laughs> so she dresses up as Donald Trump and goes to Lauren and he's like, it's not going to happen. Yep. I love it. So that's, I think, the first thing of what you're talking about is clearly the famous people hanging around each week is becoming a thing. I don't know how you stop doing it. I don't know why you would, but it's hurting you. Um, Too much of a good thing. Yes. Also, you know they're not going to be there every week. Right. You can't rely as, on that. As much as Alec has been on, Alec Baldwin, he's still not there every week because he has a movie career. And he's, he's, been, he's been pretty vocal about, I don't want to do this every week. He's been pretty vocal about not wanting to do it at all. I think that's just his default setting. But he's been pretty vocal about, I don't think it's, every week is too much. Yeah. I would also argue he is a problem. Not Alec Baldwin. The 45th president of the United States is a problem. Because he has no sense of humor. He has no idea what's funny. And folks, this is as political as I'm ever going to get. It's SNL. There's no way of avoiding it. So let me just state at the top. He's not funny. He has no idea what funny is. And he's impossible to parody because he's a parody. He's a parody. Yeah, he is a parody of himself. But SNL has always been, uh, there's always been a political parody to SNL. And I think. Except there's no parody there. These last couple years have just been almost solely reliant on this administration for the content. Well, it's hard not to. But how do you get away from it? it, They don't shut up. It's relevant. These people can't stop making news. And you can't parody a parody. You know, Chevy Chase did Gerald Ford. There was no impression. He fell, and he turned Gerald Ford into an amiable dunce. Yeah. And Gerald Ford, by the way, only stumbled once. Chevy did it every week. 
for 20 weeks. And that became how people saw Gerald Ford. It killed Gerald Ford when he ran for election. Dan Aykroyd did Jimmy Carter. He played Jimmy Carter as a know-it-all, which Jimmy Carter kind of was. They didn't really do Reagan much. The best Reagan I ever saw was Phil Hartman played it like he was conning people. That the um, amiable grandfatherly tone was the cover for this cunning political mind. Dana did George Bush. He may be the most famous. That, that George Bush is so good. But it's kind of become what we think of George Bush. George yeah. Bush never said, not nah, going to do it. <laughs> yeah, right. But Dana did, and people now think he said it because Dana said it. But when, I will say, when you hear old man Bush talk, you can hear Dana. Yeah, but it's Dana hard. got him. It's hard to caricature a caricature. <laughs> and that's what Trump yeah. is. Trump is a caricature. He's he, a caricature. He, they don't, folks, I'm telling you. He's a TV personality. I mean, I'm not saying anything controversial It would not surprise me here. if Alec Baldwin is just reciting actual Trump lines from the week. When Baldwin shows up at 1130 on Saturday night and rolls himself out there in the orange wig, it would not surprise me if it's just direct Trump quotes. You can't parody that. There's nothing you can do with this guy. And we're in such a climate now where 50% of the people are going to say it's funny. Well, actually, no. 33 point whatever percent of the people are going to say, that's funny. 33% are going to say, you're being mean to the president and you're a travesty and you're a liberal scumbag and you ought to be thrown out of the country. And then the other percent is going to say, you didn't hit him hard enough. You can't win. They're a TV show. They're trying to get as many people as possible to watch. Right. They have to do what they do and let the chips fall where they may. But I don't think they really want Odessa, Texas to turn the TV off. That goes against their business model. Because they're a TV show. Yeah. I mean, they, they aren't meet the press. And this is one of my, where I'll defend the show. They aren't meet the press. They aren't Dateline. They aren't the CBS Evening News. They're a comedy show for 90 minutes a week. They're supposed to be funny. They're supposed to make you laugh. How do you do that with this group? I don't know. And by this group, I mean the people in charge of the country. I don't know. They can't shut up. They can't not make news. I don't know what they're supposed to do. But you're going to alienate a vast majority of your audience because there's a lot of people who voted for Donald Trump and they just think you're out to get him. They've bought into the idea that he is a persecuted man. As disgusting as that makes me feel when I think that somebody actually thinks that way, it's, what the, it's the way it is. It's 2018. This is where we are. So they've got to tread a line. I do think their po their politics are pretty out there. I mean, it's evident where it I think they land. It seems pretty clear, yeah. But they're just, they're stuck with this guy who you can't make fun of, who's not funny, who's not warm, who's not gentle. He is a loud, boorish, obnoxious schmuck and a huckster of the highest order. And I we're keeping this in. <laughs> and he's a huckster of the highest order. And as Mitt Romney said, all we got was this lousy hat. Yeah. And if you have a problem well, with that, you can email the show. Like I said, it's Saturday Night Live. We're talking about politics. We got no choice. We have tried, Sean and I, to make this apolitical. And this episode, there's no real way to do that because we're talking about Trump. There's no way. But and again, Saturday Night Live, Saturday Night Live. Is, is a political... It is. It's satire. So, so Trump's a problem. What is the, what is the primary... That's what people are looking for. ...primary point for satire. It's, it's political That's what commentary. people are looking for. I'm telling you. It, yeah. When people tune in, that's what they're looking for. They want to know, what are they going to do to Donald Trump and the people who are with him today? That's, that's a, what they're looking for. As a writer, though, you got to be kind of frustrated that you yes. can't do anything else. Oh, yeah, 100%. And they'll be the first, people will be the first to tell you, not everybody wants to write political stuff. Yeah. Bill Hader didn't want to write political stuff. If he had to do Scarmucci every week, oh, man, Bill Hader would lose his mind. 
when people talk about political Saturday Night Live, the episode of Saturday Night Live where Sarah Palin showed up the first time, Bill Hader did a sketch with Will Forte where they are some sort of businessmen who are working on a business deal with Josh Brolin, and the whole sketch centers around who called who fartface. It's one of my favorite sketches that Hader and Forte ever did, and it happened in the middle of a political show. And when Forte and Hader wrote it, they went to Lorne and said, there's no way you want to do that this week. It's not political. We're sorry. And Lorne was the one who said, you know, let's give them a little variety. You know, they're going to get Palin at the top. They're going to get all this stuff. Do it. Keep it mixed up. The way Bill Hader described it is it played like a David Mamet play. When they did it in dress rehearsal, like nobody laughed because the, the end part of the sketch is they have berated Josh Brolin to the point where he storms out. They get him on the phone and they berate him still. And you hear Bill Hader go, oh, God, he shot himself. And they close <laughs> their phones and Hader and Forte book it. So at the end, at the dress rehearsal, when they when Hader goes, oh, God, he shot himself. I guess the crowd just went <gasps> like oh, gasped. And Hader's like, well, we're dead. That'll kill it because nobody laughed. So I would say Trump is a problem for them. The celebrities are a problem for them. The climate is a problem for them, too. There's a part of me, philosophically, I was watching this comedy special once on HBO, and it was Chris Rock, Ricky Gervais, Seinfeld, and Louis C.K. I don't think you could find four more disparate comedic modes in one room. However, they are all friends. I think the, the one that tickles me most is that Jerry Seinfeld and Chris Rock are so close. You wouldn't put the two of them together, yet they are quite friendly, and the warmth goes both ways. It's clear Jerry likes Chris Rock, and it's clear Chris Rock likes Jerry. It tickles me, because it's just an odd couple. So the four of them are talking about comedy, and again, not surprising, Seinfeld, Jerry, says, you know, comedy is really about watching a comedian step over laser beams. There's all these laser beams on the floor, like a cat burglar, and what you're watching and what you're reacting to is somebody jumping over the laser beams. And the idea that is anything not funny as a topic, Jerry, Rock, Gervais, CK, me, would tell you, no, everything's up for grabs. It just has to be funny. Right. So is a cancer joke funny? I'm not ashamed to say, yeah, if it stinks, then no. It could be, yeah. A good comedian might be able to make that funny. Bad's, bad doesn't. Okay, but we live in a climate now where people are very defensive about the laser beams. Right. For better or worse, like this is not old white dude telling you <laughs> that, you know, we're, th that this is a world he doesn't understand. It's not true. There are plenty of things going on out there that are real and that are serious and should be addressed. Harvey Weinstein should be in jail. Period. End of story. Sexual harassment in any form in any workplace shouldn't happen. People should be comfortable and safe in a work environment. Man, woman, whoever. People should be comfortable and safe anywhere. Yep. Work environment, school, right. movie theater, etc. But we live in a heightened state of disgruntled, I hate to say snowflakeish, but uh, it's that whole yeah. aggrieved. We live in an aggrieved culture. Everybody is aggrieved. Got a lot of problems with you people. Yeah, it's just airing of the grievances from Seinfeld just every day, 365, 24-7, it never stops. Some of it is legitimate, and some of it is just stupid. The problem is there's so much of it now, it's really hard to filter the really serious from just the foolish, that has an effect on comedy. Because if you start to say, you can't say that, you have violated the first rule that Jerry and Rock and CK and Gervais laid out for you, which is nothing is off limits. The problem now is things are off limits or people want them to be off limits. And the problem is the person in seat 5B 
has his set of what's off limits or hers, and seat 6B has hers. The two don't meet. So you've offended somebody, you've made somebody unhappy, and somebody is saying, I don't understand what's going on here. They did a sketch on Saturday Night Live. There was a woman named Claudine Langer, and she was married to a very famous singer. I want to say Andy Williams or something like that. And she found, her claim to fame was she found a guy she was with in bed with another woman, and she shot them. She, I believe she got off. So Saturday Night Live did this thing called the Claudine Langer Downhill Skiing Race. And it was people just skiing downhill, and Claudine Langer was just shooting them. Like, they got in trouble for that then. Now they'd be pulled off the air. I mean, they'd have to apologize to three million people. And I'm not talking about the Langer on its merits. It's just there's things that they could do in the 70s, 80s, 90s that you couldn't do now because people would just get very offended very fast and easily offended. And if you're coming to a comedy... If you're coming to comedy like that, you're asking for trouble. Comedians push the envelope, even the ones that don't swear, and you would consider apolitical. Bob Newhart, Jerry, those type of comedians. In his day, the comedian who shall not be named, who did Jell-O Pudding, he would be somebody in the comedic world. He didn't, the cursing wasn't really there. He was talking about family. It was supposed to be clean, you know, work clean. He wasn't Pryor. He wasn't Carlin. He wasn't Ricky. He wasn't Rock, Chappelle. First of all, I have no problem with swearing. As you might know, I probably do it. So <laughs> I've probably done it in the show. But like, there's clean comics, there's comics who swear, and I'm fine with it. You know, Jerry doesn't really, but Chris Rock does. I love both equally. Chris Rock uses swears like a weaponry. It is a fine-tuned machine to hear Chris Rock drop the F word. It's magical. It's truly magical. Hearing Jerry do it would probably jar me. But the point is, even Jerry is going to push your button on some level. Because that's the comedian's job. These are not normal people, folks. Watch any interview with comedians where they talk seriously about their career. And all of them, Larry David, Jerry, Rock, Chappelle, all of them will tell you they are not normal people. You don't get into that life to be normal. And you've seen these people. David Letterman strike you guys as normal? <laughs> no. And not a normal late night host. Is Je- do you think Jerry is normal? Do people think Seinfeld is normal? I assure you, folks, he's not. He'll be the first to tell you. He thinks he's autistic. If you read some interviews with him, he thinks he's on the spectrum. So like normal people don't, Gary Shandling, I don't know if anybody saw the Gary Shandling HBO documentary, uh, the one Judd Apatow did. If you haven't, I highly recommend you do. It's fabulous. Gary wasn't normal. None of these guys and women are normal. You don't get into that business normal. They're going to push your buttons. That's the point. They want to make you think. They want to get you into a mindset. If you're coming to that show, whether it's Jerry or Gervais or Chris Rock or Dave Chappelle or whoever, and your thought is, I don't want to be offended tonight. I don't want to have to look at things differently tonight. Then go home and go on Twitter and deal with your followers. Just stay in your bubble and leave it because you're asking for trouble to go to a comedy show or to turn on a comedy show and have it be all the time just feeding your desires. That's the biggest. That's another problem. Culturally, we are all siloed. If you think about yeah. it on, on Netflix, if you watch enough stuff, their algorithm starts to dictate to you yes. based on your needs. If you're not careful, you'll never get off that algorithm. A lot of services do that. Yeah, everybody does it. It's all algorithms and equations and math. Stuff I hate. Shout out to my great friends of the show who are math people. You have added Ayo. so much you subtract very little. I'm not My, trying to divide our audience Nobody wants here. to divide, but we want to multiply the things that we do that are good. I hate math. 
you're, if you're not careful, you're going to get stuck in this algorithm where it's just feeding your, your desire, the things you like. Every now and then, it's good to stray and do something you don't like. Push yourself just a little because I think we're coming to a point culturally where we are all way too into what we're into. The cracks never form for the sunlight to come in. For example, I love Marvel movies and DC and Star Wars as much as the next person, but I also like The Godfather and Goodfellas and Lawrence of Arabia and Casablanca and The Ten Commandments and, uh, you know, what you would call serious movie fare. That's in my life, too. And as much as I like Saturday Night Live and Seinfeld and 30 Rock, The Office, I love DR. I love The West Wing. I love The Sopranos. You got to do different. Different's it, okay. Not only, you don't only have to realize that you have to do different every once in a while, but recognize the fact that almost everyone in your life is into different things. Things that you probably don't expect. Yeah. And I, I think, wow, we're going real serious here. Yeah. But I, I, I feel strongly about this. We got problems in this country, folks. And not to also alarm you, we got problems planet-wide. Big problems, which we're not even having discussions about. Because I can't get past, is the dress blue or black? <laughs> is it Yanni or is it Laurel? Oh, God. Okay, we can't get past that. How are we going to solve the infrastructure is crumbling? How are we going to solve the planet is clearly collapsing? Slowly, but it's collapsing. I don't know how we solve any of this. I think to start, though, it starts locally. The great Tip O'Neill, the Massachusetts politician, once said, all politics are local. It starts locally, and it starts in your life on a day-to-day. Try to let in something, someone that is outside of your norm. Talk to somebody with a different political belief than you. You know, it doesn't have to be about don't politics. Fucking, don't freaking turn it into crossfire. Yeah. It's not Fox News. We're not yelling at each other all the time. Just have somebody in your life that doesn't think like you. If you think of anybody out there who's made it, big time made it in terms of success, you know, Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs surrounded himself with people who didn't always think like him. Elon Musk surrounds himself with people who don't always think like him. Because if you're always thinking like you, how do you know what the other guy wants? And if your goal is as many people as possible comes in your train, jumps on your wagon, then you better figure out the other stuff. And it does tie into SNL because SNL has a cultural place. It's been on TV for 43 years. It's a highly rated program. I hate to call it a cultural institution, but it kind of is. Kind of, yeah. Comedically, it most certainly is. Again, it's hard to think of anyone with a platform that wasn't touched by SNL in some way. Yep. They've hosted, they've guest starred, they've cast membered, something. Performed. They've all been on it, right? But this is part of it. The cultural part of it. Do something out of the ordinary. Talk to somebody outside of your ordinary. Start there, because that's the only way. So when I think about SNL, to bring it back to SNL, is this is the climate in which it faces itself. It's a tough place for comedy to live, because you're bound to offend somebody. And now the offense has a very broad... There's a lot of ways to get that offense out. Twitter, Facebook, Twitch, whatever. And because we live in the aggrieved culture... The ludicrous is taken seriously. That's a tough place to do a comedy show 90 minutes in length. You're going to offend somebody. You just are. Sometimes that's what they're looking for. But now that's a double-edged sword and that can kill you. Yeah. It's tough. 
I don't want to blame the cast altogether and say, well, these guys are not, and girls. They're in a tough spot. Politics has just taken everything over. They could not do a show now where Trump doesn't appear or he doesn't loom. They can't because he just won't stop tweeting. Uh, is there is there anything you wanted to talk about that we didn't <laughs> as it pertains to SNL? I mean, I think this is probably something we'll come back to a lot because we both like laughter and comedy and talking about funny people. No, we really hit it. I, I mean, it's an it's a show that's really, you know, it's an important show to me. I try to carve out 90 minutes a week to watch it, either Saturday night at 1130, which is hard for me now. Thankfully, the DVR exists so I can watch it Sunday morning. Yeah, and uh, the folks at Saturday Night Live curate a yeah, extensive a YouTube you collection. So if, if you don't watch the show live... Uh, you can find almost every sketch yeah. that they do, and some that were taken off air for time. Yep, online on YouTube. I mean, Check we could out. go on and on. I, I don't want this to turn into a five-hour, but I mean, just off the top of my head, just to run through it: Wayne's World and Mike Myers. I love Mike. I love Dana. Unfrozen caveman lawyer. You know, Phil Hartman was a genius, and um, he died tragically. And he was a great performer, and he was underrated, and he did so many great things on Saturday Night Live. But I loved Unfrozen Caveman Lawyer. I didn't talk about Bill Hader as much as I liked. And again, we all fall in love with Cass, right? I really loved the Will Ferrell Saturday Night Live years. When he left, I thought, well, what happens now? And it took a little time for it to take shape, but that group of people that came in, so Hader, Jason Sudeikis, Will Forte, Fred Armisen, and Kristen Wiig, they did some really great stuff. MacGruber. I'm sure if we ever talk about the old MacGyver with Richard Dean Anderson or the new one that's on TV, I can't watch MacGyver now and not think of MacGruber. And it, it's unfortunate for the MacGyver folks because I know they're working real hard. They do such a, that show is really solid. But I'm sorry, whenever anything happens on that show, I just, in my head, I just hear MacGruber. And I just think of Forte doing his MacGyver impression. And I just think, Man, they really nailed it. I'm also one of five people who saw MacGruber in the movie theater. I paid money to see MacGruber. I own it. It's in my, my Blu-ray collection. I think it's underrated as a comedy movie. I think if people watch it and forget the BS about how much money it made and all the stuff that's really not important to people, even though that's our bread and butter on this show, it's really funny. And it has a lot of funny moments. And if you like action movies, it parodies 80s action movies really well. So I think about that. We didn't talk about Will Ferrell a lot. We didn't talk about Will Ferrell. Which, we didn't talk about Adam Sandler. We didn't talk about yeah, Chris Farley. We didn't talk about Farley or Sandler or David Spade. David Spade, yeah. All of whom deserve some discussion. I, I'm amazed we didn't talk about Will Ferrell because I love Will Ferrell. I think the problem is there's this, just so much. There's just so much. We could probably do about. this in two parts. and Probably. And maybe we will and one we, day. Maybe we'll come back. We didn't talk about Christopher Walken I at know. all. Yeah. You talk about one of the great hosts, Christopher Walken is in that group. We didn't talk about Tom Hanks. We didn't really talk about Timberlake. We didn't talk about the Lonely Island guys. There's still so much. I, I think we'll come back at some point and do a, an SNL part two. Yeah, I think we might have to do a part two. I didn't talk about Sprockets. I could talk an hour about Sprockets. <laughs> there's, there's a lot there that I think we could still have a reasonable SNL discussion. I will say I'm sorry it got a little political, but again, when you talk about SNL, it's hard to separate politics out. It's been part of it since the show went on air. So if it's a little more political this episode than usual, sorry, we'll try harder next time. 
I guess. So for all of our great friends of the show out there, and you know who you are, you are marvelous. We <laughs> thank you for listening. And as always, if you want to chime in about anything that we talked about in this episode, solely focused around SNL and the impact that it's had on our culture and people that we view as celebrities and the entertainment that we consume on a daily basis, connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at WantedByNunPod. Send us an email at WantedByNunShow at gmail.com. And again, thanks for listening. (laughs) 